This podcast is part of the Frederick Podcast Network. Learn more at listenfrederick.com. Welcome to season three of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. This is the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, season three. Hello, listeners of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. We hope you're having a great day wherever you are and have been enjoying some science fiction recently, maybe even some new Star Trek. Now, before I introduce today's guest, if you're a fan of the Big Sci-Fi, I want to remind you to join our Big Sci-Fi Facebook group, like this podcast if you're on a platform that allows that, or even write a glowing review if you're on a platform that allows that, or simply tell your friends about us, please. Now, our guest today was introduced to Trekkies back in season four of The Next Generation. He was part of the ongoing Klingon Empire plot line that dovetailed in a series of episodes to include the two-part season close and season opener episode, Redemption. It was when Lursa, one of the Duras sisters, proudly announced, we have discovered that our brother did indeed have a son and heir, that we first met the character of Torell, (laughs) played by J.D. Cullum. So J.D. Cullum is here today to talk to us about that role and the rest of his career. He's had roles in so many popular TV shows and movies like Grey's Anatomy, Bones, Mad Men, Weeds, Law and Order, NYPD Blue, Frasier, ER, and to include other science fiction shows like Sliders, Lois and Clark, and more recently, The Orville, which I hope we'll talk about too. So with that, welcome, J.D. How are you doing this evening? Hi, good to be here. Excellent. Well, we're we're so happy and, and thrilled. And I think the first thing we do want to talk about a little bit is is that role uh, mm-hmm. in Next Generation. Sure. What do you want to know? What are you thinking about? Yeah. Well, I was, you know, in researching for this, I guess one of the first things I was a little bit surprised is, you know, they they refer to in the episode Terrell as a boy um, and young. You were in your 20s when you played that role? Is it my... Yeah, right? yeah. I was in my twenties, but I was like way shorter than every Klingon around me. Those okay. Those you men have answered are the question. Yeah, they're like all six foot three. They're huge. <laughs> I I thought, okay, did they give you flats and everybody else had like uh you know four inch heels or something like that? No, to make- it's it's been a lifetime affliction with me. I'm short. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm upset about what? it. Wait a minute. Are my short is my sister Judy, who is four eleven. And she's okay. one of the tallest people I've ever met. So, <laughs> well, I'm a veritable giant compared to her. I'm okay, five very seven and a quarter. Oh, that's mm. fine. Taller than me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know, I knew as a fellow short, there's a reason why I really your character resonated with me, uh, even as a Klingon. It's like it's about time they represent short people in this show. Um, so I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, and also, um, you know, I was gonna. And I will talk about Michael Westmore, but I mean, when yeah. we were doing uh, sort of building my head, um, he was explaining like all the ridges on my head and how they were derived from my relatives and that there was a sort of a pattern. Um, you know what I mean? That that it was my heritage. And mm. also, I don't think I had quite as much of um, my prosthetics were um, not as extensive as a fully grown uh, Klingon adult. And I was also saying that Michael Westmore, um, being a Klingon boy, I was a little bit uh, different from uh, the Klingon adults who, as I mentioned, were giant beefy men towering over me. And I was this little guy, but Michael Westmore um, also did not give me as much of a prosthetic uh, as uh, the rest of them because I was not fully developed. So, um, Interesting. And, and, and also that uh, the ridges on my head were um, related to my relatives, that there was actually a pattern. Um, and he even did that with the teeth, that my teeth matched up with um, my, my relatives as well. So it was kind of I'll fascinating. That is, you know, I've heard, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump in first because I, yeah. I find that really fascinating. And Trek fans are known worldwide for just the detail stuff like you just talked about. Just We just eat that type of thing up. And I just, I think that's that's fascinating that he was, there was thought behind the process and why they did certain things. And did that help you as an actor? I mean, did that really help help you in that role in particular? Well, it 
it, yeah, I mean, in a strange way, you know, my meeting with Michael was more productive than anything else. Um, you know, the director was more about meeting the schedule and just mm. getting things done. And so, like, I didn't have much direction. And uh, I think, you know, there's a, there's a story. So I, I went to a convention at one point and I found out that there was some debate about my performance and um, there were uh, there was one faction that felt that I was much too emotional um, as a Klingon, and uh, and then there was another faction that had decided that since I was a Klingon boy, I was allowed to be a little bit more emotional and not as stoic. And you know, I'm thinking like, wow, you know, all I did was just learn my lines and like hit my mark, <laughs> and I didn't realize what I was getting into. I mean, this was enormous, this this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I never really thought of Klingons as stoic. Because, I mean, they're they're gregarious, they're loud. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it wasn't stoic so much as, I don't know, um, perhaps like masculine and, and stern. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I was a little bit kind of shrill and I was a bit of a nudge. I was kind of annoying as a Klingon. Right. Well, that's, but I think that was exactly, you know, the effect for us watching it. It came yeah. out the way it should be. It's like, here's a kid. No one's supposed to like him because we want Gowron to win. You know, we we want, <laughs> you know, who Worf is supporting to win. So anyone coming in, we can't we can't like him too much because <laughs> that would just, well, you know, mess it up. Well, the other thing is that this, you know, your character was this kid that they just dragged in. The two sisters drag him mm-hmm. in and say, okay, yeah. you're, you're going to be our proxy leader. You're going to be the guy who's going to be put in charge. But of course, ultimately, I would think that he would be just a puppet character. You know, the the young, you know, the young Pharaoh who takes his directions from whoever is directing him. And oh. that, that's what your character would be. So, you know, I, I think yeah, I mean, Lursa and, Lursa and Bator were, were totally in charge of me. I mean, they yeah. were the ones who were making all of the decisions. Right, right. Um, one question, Brian and, and Adina, since you are you know, have better, better memories about TNG than I do. Was Duras in a prior episode in seasons one, two, or three? Yeah. Okay, and that would be interesting. Worf killed to... him! <laughs> okay, no, no, I, I don't remember this, the episode. That's all. Oh, because... so, so one of my favorite episodes ever because okay. Susie Plaxton, her character, Kalar, was Worf's mate. Mm-hmm. And Duras killed yeah. her. And so as revenge, Worf killed Duras. And, you know, yeah, that, that was a great episode. Great episode. So for what JD just said, it would be interesting now to go back to look at that episode to mm-hmm. see the ridges on his mm-hmm. head. And do they compare or match up well with the ridges that Westmoreland used for JD? And then you would see that family lineage that he, interesting. Pay, he spends the time to show an accurate development are. of the of the different um, houses of, of of Klingon. So I'm usually not the, as much as I am into the show. I'm usually not the person who pauses the screen and studies those details. But I'm gonna. <laughs> that's what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, because now you got me. Why? That's why I want to know what the episode was with Duras was in it. So mm-hmm. I want to see about that now since what JD had to say. <laughs> yeah. Were Were you one of the uh, Klingon actors or actors portraying Klingon, excuse me, that uh, um, got to meet Ronald Reagan because there's rumor that he appeared on the set during the filming. He did. He, yes, it was the day that Ronald Reagan appeared on the set and he he appeared during a, a lunch break and I uh, slept through the entire thing. Oh my God. Yeah, nobody told me about it. And, you know, naturally I was exhausted having a 4 a.m. Yes. call in order yeah. to get all this makeup on me. And so I would take any opportunity I could to crash. And then I found out like, yeah, you're Ronald Reagan. You missed Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Like, oh, man. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my worst impression. Well, I was here looking for that young lad named JD. Where might I have seen him? Oh, dear. I guess I'm just going to go home to mommy and get back to being president of the United States. Uh, Nancy, like- Nancy and I, we were looking to meet the young... Klingon, I can't do it very well, but I think maybe I was a little bit better than you. That was pretty good. Those were both good. Yeah. So, is was he there because he was a former actor, or was you know I have no idea what he was doing there. (laughs) I don't know. He just maybe could have been just in the neighborhood. Yeah, he was a fan of the show. I'll look that up. We can continue our conversation. I'll look that up and see if there's any any rhyme or reason why that happened since we're here. But uh, yeah. 
So, that's a so great tell, story, though. You, you yeah, no, that's interesting. Nobody told you a world yeah. leader was there on set. <laughs> oh man. Um. So tell me, what what did you think of the Klingon outfits? Did you think that maybe you could have been the fifth member of the uh, the band Kiss with the way that they uh, dressed you up in that episode? You know, it's it's it was just very revealing. I felt very exposed. It was like a leotard. I mean, it was just like very very form fitting and. Uh -huh. You know, like uh, there's no hiding there. Like your physique is is on public display for everyone. But I, I'll tell you this. Um, what's weird is after I was a Klingon for a while, um, I started to become a little attracted to Lursa and Bator. Um, as, as did many young men back in yeah, the day. Yeah, like it was very weird. I was like, wow, look at that. Meaning, you know, that right. area. Yeah. yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah. those are, those are nice. That was a little revealing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the question is, was it real or was it part of the outfit that they wore that was all prosthetic? Oh, I don't well, mean for you. I hope you didn't try to find out in a more intimate or <laughs> inappropriate way, but still. <laughs> No, no, I think it. I think it was the real thing. I mean, wow. that made part of the whole casting process, you know. But yeah, those that was real. Oh <laughs> boy! Okay, I. Uh... So, so Ronald Reagan, when asked, <laughs> when asked about uh, what he thought of the Klingons, he said, "Well, I, I like them." That sounds more like Jimmy Stewart. I'm sorry. Well, he says me. they remind me of Congress. <laughs> well, that's, I guess. What is that a said. real? Is that a really for real? According real to IMDb. That's that's what Ronald Actually, Reagan said. If you look, if you go and watch it on Prime Video, which is what I did, they have trivia stuff. And now I just thought about that. It was there. I, I kind of buy your lead when I read it. But mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, Brian. That's the quote that he said. OK, that's, or that's what they listed on Prime Video as, as the quote cool. that he said. So that's interesting. <laughs> so, um, J.D., this was the only episode of Star Trek that you were on, correct? No, I was on two episodes. Uh, two there episodes. was the cl cliffhanger. It ended one season. I forget which number. Two, what season two or something? Four. Season four, and then I came back for the first episode of season right. five. So, I'm not but, really sure what my fate was. So who knows? No, but that was it. That was the. It was essentially a two-parter or one, <laughs> you know, singular storyline, right? Correct. Yeah. So when you go to conventions, do you feel like? the great baseball player, Moonlight Graham, who played one single game of baseball, but his renowned and revered and ended up in the movie as a character in Field of Dreams. Because you were in this one episode where you automatically part of the Star Trek universe, revered for being someone who was on Star Trek, and that's how you, you know, you'll always be remembered as someone who was on Star Trek. Well, it's funny. I mean, I do sometimes think that that's really going to be my my only my legacy. Um, you know that that my IMDb my my biography, if I ever get into the New York Times, will be that JD Cullum was a Klingon. Um, <laughs> although I will say I was the voice of the frosted mini wheat, the Kellogg's frosted mini wheats, uh, for eight years. I was the vanilla really? mini wheat. So really? between wow. that and Star Trek, that was the kind of the closest I came to real fame. But I only I only went to one convention, and it was a disaster. Okay. Um, it was a kind of enjoyable disaster, but um, it was in Canada, just on the other side of Niagara Falls. And so they were going to pay me in, in Canadian dollars, and they ended up paying me less than half of what they had negotiated. Oh, and I thought that I was going to be very popular. So I made something like 800 pictures, you know, <laughs> and lugged them over the border. And I think I may have signed like 10 of them. And um, the whole thing was, and it was not very well attended, but um, the, and by the way, I think, uh, do you guys call yourselves Trekkers? Because I Trekkies. think okay, well, it's Trekkies. Oh, okay. Back then, <laughs> for some reason, they insisted on being on called Trekkers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There was a, well, there was a, yeah, there was a, I remember when I became a Trekkie as a teenager and learning about the whole lore, there was like, yeah, it was, I feel like there was a time when, the time that I was a teenager, it was when it was starting to shift Okay. You know, the older yeah. folks didn't want to be called Trekkies. And I think it was because it sounded oh, too close no. to hippie. No, no, right. no. You got it wrong, Adina. That's not how I remember it. We're going to have an argument right here in front of our uh -oh. guests. <laughs> Tre Trekkies are the uh -huh. original Star Trek fans. They love Shatner, Nimoy, all those Trekkers. 
came in that term in I think came along when next gen came along. No, I, I feel like this happened in the 70s, long before the next long before. And I right. feel like All I've right. got I think I have books and things that I'm, I could possibly prove. I'm not gonna later. die on this hill, I'll tell you that right now. So wow, I might I, love I the might friction and the tension in the air. This is great. <laughs> What you should see us we'll argue over. Off screen. I, I I got chewed out one episode because I said data rather than I said data. You know, like, don't say that. That's wrong. You know. Well, data even said one is his name, one is not. It's really <laughs> simple. Really simple. Really you gotta simple. take notes. Come on now, pay attention. <laughs> so, potato, can I ask... potato. So, but anyway, so... to to finish the story, I mean, oh, yeah, it's not sure. really much of a story. Uh, but they, but these folks were so welcoming and so kind to me. They kind of inducted me into this secret ceremony, and um, I believe they gave me some kind of an um, amulet or a, a, a totem of some kind that inducted me into this society. I didn't know what was going on, but I felt very, very privileged, and I also got really drunk with everybody. So we kind of had a blast. <laughs> Awesome. You, paid, you got paid less than you thought you were going to, and but you still had fun. Oh, I so. totally did. Yeah, and I would, you know, do another convention. I've just never, never really gotten invited. The, the, the other thing that's happened is that somebody I've had um, signed some cards, and so people have sent me cards and had mm -hmm. me sign them and then mail them back out for trading purposes. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Right. Well, I wish our Canadian brother was here because he would have enjoyed that story. Yeah, our uh, co-host Chris is is from Toronto. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. So speaking, so kind of transitioning, I, I really am anxious to talk about the Orville too, because the Orville is like a, an amazing show. And you're also in an amazing amount of makeup and prosthetics, uh, you know, was that, uh, how did that compare, especially the time that passed, the technology has changed. How does that compare to, to Trek? So, so I'm glad you asked that because up until that time, I thought that, you know, I'd had the most extensive makeup of all, but the Orville beat out Next Generation. I had a more of a um, prosthetic and latex and whatever than I've ever had. Wow. And it, it's not only, you know, was my head completely red, I mean, like crimson, the color, I mean, and they did my hands as well. Um, but um, I couldn't hear because there were no ears to speak of. So my ears were completely muffled and then, they had me fitted for these gold contact lenses, were, which was like putting broken glass in my eyes. And I oh. could not see. So they had to lead me to the set wow. and lead me to my mark. Um, I, I mean, I was I was very, very disoriented. Um, and and um, But it was, I mean, a remarkable job that they did. It took me like three weeks to get the stuff out of my fingernails, the red stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it came, you know, and I actually, that I rewatched the other day because Redemption, the episode of, of Next Generation, I've seen that a, a thousand times. I could probably recite it. But the Orville episode, I had seen it when it first aired, um, but I hadn't seen that one since. So I just watched that one the other day. And I mean, what's amazing is never know that you can't hear, never know that you really can't see. Like, it just comes out so well. But yeah, it, it's such a it's a, such a great scene. Well, you know, I do my best acting alone. I don't need anybody else. Don't get in my way. Just <laughs> I'll do it. I'll handle I'll handle it all. Um, so, you know, I had just, yeah. I had just, uh, kind of, uh, worked everything out. They planted me in the right spot. Of course, as a guest star, you know, you don't get a lot of takes. Like it's all about, you know, mm. the cadence of things is very rapid. They're moving, moving, moving. And so like, you got to know your lines and you might get two, you might get two close-ups, you know, and that's it. You're done. Cause wow. they're focused on the leads. But uh, and then, you know, it's really a challenging job because they lead me into this room and I have to deal with this console. Um, I guess I'm the zookeeper in this mm -hmm. in this particular show and I'm supposed to be operating the console and I'm trying to see this thing and figure out like how to look like I know what I'm doing, you know, to, to look familiar with it. So there's an incredible a lot of information coming at you very quickly. and It's easy to get stressed out. So you grab what moment you can to just work with things and like try to do a little rehearsal for yourself and get yourself comfortable. And then that's it. They're rolling. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. How was it looking through the, um, like the contact lenses, the, uh, the eye covers? Yeah. Like I said, it was like having broken glass in my eyes. It wow. It really was uncomfortable. It really hurt. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 to even the thought of wearing contacts, I can't bring myself to do that just because, you know, that feeling. I would think about, oh my God, this thing's on my eye. But, you know, and and considering how many actors do have to wear some type of eye makeup, you know, mm-hmm. of whatever it might be, um, it's that's quite debilitating here, here, for someone a, to work. Here's another dimension to this thing. So in rehearsals, I'm. Reading my lines with a very attractive young man who's a terrific actor. He had a British voice. Very nice. Good. I thought, okay, good. I can relate to this guy. Well, the camera rolls and suddenly I'm looking at this helmet with just a little blue rectangle on it. And his voice is coming from behind this thing. And I'm I, no one told me he's like a robot or something. Uh, I can barely <laughs> hear him. Like Isaac. what happened to my yeah. actor? Isaac, <laughs> yep. yes. Yeah, that's oh, that's great. great. So, so in rewatching in rewatching it, one of the things that I realized is they actually set this up for. I think that they set it up that you could be a recurring character because. So they have they come to the zoo. So here's a planet that has access to a bazillion known species across the galaxy. So the Orville could come back someday. And be like, you know, we need them to help us because there's some species that we know nothing about that they probably know something about. So I'm here. I'm, I'm plotting out like mm-hmm. a Norville mm-hmm. episode to, to get to the point of asking, if you were asked to reprise that role and come back and do all that makeup and do it again, w- would you? Pay me double and I'll do it. But it would seriously have to be double. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's Yeah. Okay. It's that it's that intense. Yeah. Make sure sure to tell your agent that that's what your stipulation is. No green M&Ms. I want double pay. Okay. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't realize like it was supposed to be a one day guest star, but I had to like go get the contact lenses fitted, then come in another day for the fitting and blah, blah, blah. I was like, this is kind of like a a lot of work here I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. How was it working with um, the crew and the, the team that was the Orville versus the crew that made Star Trek? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's been so long. But, um, you know, Seth MacFarlane uh, was uh, the Orville and he was he's just very accessible. Like he's right there Mm -hmm. on set for all the takes and stuff. And he's kind of given direction. And um, it felt um, that I was getting a lot more feedback with Star Star Trek. uh, Star Trek. I was just kind of really on my own. And, uh, you know, I I didn't get any any support. which, you know, that's fine. Um, I just remember also a lot of fog. There was a lot of mm. fog on that set, just constant. Um, on the Next Generation like, set. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fog. And that's yeah. interesting because the directors, part one was Cliff Boyle and part two is David Carson. David Carson went on to direct Star Trek Generations, the first Next Generation film. So two guys, you see their names a lot in the Next Generation um, credits as director. Um but uh, that's that's interesting, though, that you didn't get well, much direction. Yeah. Well, you know, and I also have a theory about because I actually know a lot of people um, from the theater community who had been cast on um, on Star Trek. And I think uh, part of it is because uh, theater actors are good with speech. And, you know, you have to talk mm. through these teeth and it seriously is not easy. I mean, you're, you know, it starts out like this and you're trying to work <laughs> around these teeth and eventually you figure it out. But it's really about the voice because you don't mm. have a, a lot of freedom of expression with your face and stuff like that. So that theater actors, I think, uh, were more suited to playing uh, those kinds of parts. Very interesting. 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 See, so I was going to turn that around and think that uh, you know i think we've we've heard some information that seth mcfarland is just so detail-oriented and and so very hands-on like like a little bit overly hands-on possibly yeah well strangely enough the most recent job i did i actually worked on a show called ted um which is his Ah. latest show and i also had a one-day guest star i don't think he remembers me but um (laughs) I had a lovely part. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers the movie, movie Arthur, but it was yes, I do. John, John Gielgud who was in it. And so I played a butler for a pornography store and um, I used the John Gielgud accent. And so it was really, I mean, I had a blast on that. That was a terrific work experience. And he was mm-hmm. there um, enjoying the whole thing. And uh, I thought the writing on that show was terrific. Yeah, we've heard we've heard good things, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to check that out. When is it supposed to come out on TV? Have you heard anything? 
I don't know. You know, I'm blessed <laughs> to be told these things. I just make it. They'll tell me when it's going to. We can tell you when this probably will be broadcast yeah. our yeah. this interview. But I can. <laughs> I can tell you this though. With TV, um, mm -hmm. you're often quite disappointed when you finally see it. Um, first of all, you realize like they're cutting away from you all the time. Like on Weeds, when I did a guest star on Weeds, I thought, you know, that was pretty good. I They cut away from me literally at the end of every line. Like oh, everything went man. back to the lead character. <laughs> and then the worst thing is if you appear early in an episode, during your entire performance, these huge credits are flashing across the screen. <laughs> and it's like, that's my whole show. That's supposed to go on my reel. So. <laughs> oh look it's the director there's the writer there's the line producer line producer line there's producer. all the other yeah other oh my God, the credits last for like 20 minutes right. they really do sometimes yep. what, yeah what yep. has been what has been your favorite role um either you know on screen or off screen on stage or anything you've done what, what it doesn't have to be say? science fiction yeah yeah, any, yeah. oh my god i mean you. you know it's so different i mean it, film and television i mean it, on screen versus or on camera versus on stage and so my heart is on the stage mm -hmm. um it's it's hard to really think of uh um many uh roles in film and television that i've really had much of a blast with and um Probably the ones earlier in my career were more fun. You know, anything where they where they let the camera roll and you actually get to do a full mm. scene. Um, but some of the roles I've enjoyed playing, I did a, a two-person show called Stones in His Pockets at the Mark Caper Forum, which is Ooh. kind of a major theater in Los Angeles. And it was a two-character mm -hmm. play um, in which um, two, two actors portray a variety of, I think it's like 20 characters or something like that. So I had to do seven different uh, characters, uh, six of which were Irish and one of which was British. And uh, and there were also a couple of female characters in there, an old man in there. So that was a blast. And then I had a very special experience. My father is an actor. His name is John Cullum. And you can look him up. He's goes way back. He's kind of a Broadway institution. He was on Northern Exposure for many years, that TV show. And then he's oh. been recurring on Law and Order. He's you know, he's got, he's the real deal. But anyway, he and I did a play called The Dresser, which I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah, heard of yeah. that play, but it's about um, an older actor in his final performance of King Lear. He can barely get through this performance and it's clear that he's not going to, he's barely going to make it. And his loyal dresser, Norman, who is, you know, literally getting him through this performance any way he possibly can. And it's about the dynamics of this remarkable relationship of an actor and his dresser. And uh, it's an absolutely beautiful play. It was done as a movie with Tom Courtney and Albert Finney. Mm -hmm. um, and my father and I did it um, at a theater called the Clarence Brown Theater in Knoxville, Tennessee, which happens to be my father's hometown. So it was a very, very special experience to be acting with my father, but as an equal, you know, because I was, I think I was like 36 at the 38 at the time. So we were really at this point equals. And so uh, it was a delight. That was a special role. Oh, so, do you have a, a special affinity for British accents? Because you just mentioned that a couple of different characters that you've played, Irishmen and so on and, and well, like that. Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of British, especially on stage. And I, I think it's because maybe I just have, first of all, I'm really pretty good at accents. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just... Oh, Roy, I don't know about that one. <laughs> well, you know, I could do that one. I could do Michael oh, Caine. Well, right. If you, if you do oh, no. Michael Caine, you've got to get everything in the nose. So it's all up there. It's like you have a cold. But, um, That's really good. Uh, yeah. uh, um, I think it's also my my physiognomy, my face. There's something like, you know, from the older older period about me. You know, I don't really look contemporary. I sort of fit better into the 1940s. So <laughs> for some reason, you know, I've, whatever, I've, I've done a lot of Irish and, and British characters and stuff. Interesting. I've also done a bit of Russian character. I can do those as well. No, don't know? talk to me about Russia. I don't like the people. Well, no, right now, it's not so good in Russia. But... I'm going to send you to Ukraine. Stop it. <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, we had Dostoevsky. We had all those people. But they're all dead now. I mean, you know. 
Dos de Daños, my, my friend. Dos de Daños. Okay. I can't do accents. I, yep. <laughs> I do mean Mickey Mouse, but I'm I can't only do that in front of my children. I can't do that in front of any other Every now and then my old Long Island accent, you know, shows my, up when I say wife, coffee or mall. My wife had, I was mall. reading a book, a Disney book, and it had Mickey Mouse in it, and I started doing the Mickey Mouse voice. And my wife was in the other bedroom with my daughter reading and she got up and they both came in with jaws wide open. They're saying, <laughs> oh, you sound like Mickey Mouse. It's well, incredible. Well, that's not really true about doing I'm, Mickey Mouse because I'm gonna, that's a great voice. That, that, your Russian's much better than your Mickey <laughs> oh, thank Mouse. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even touch Mickey Mouse. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like sacred, you know? I mean, you've got to yeah. be pretty good at it. Right, right. And it was well, Walt Disney himself who did the voice. Was it really? Yes, it was. Walt Disney did the voice of Mickey Mouse. I yeah. didn't know that. I'm going to have to confirm that. a little that. trivia for the day. I'll tell you, a genius, though. Mel Blanc, I mean, now that I listen oh. to what that man did, you go, how in the world right. did he do that? Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's I. That's why I truly have a great affinity to him. Uh, anyone who did the voice actor, Dawes Butler, uh Stan Freeberg, who did voice actors on cartoon, they if they can manipulate their voice and hold it, it is just it's really and a talent. Gotta, That's why. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. I didn't mean no, to. No. I just, That's just got go excited. Ahead. I had to jump in. <laughs> yeah, uh, go ahead. It, I've I've been to one convention, um, and that was in Columbus, Ohio, just just recent back the beginning of December last year, and there was a ton of voiceover actors there, and some of those folks had lines as long as an actor who's in front of the camera as as the star trek actors jonathan mm -hmm. frakes or gates mcfadden they have some of those folks there is a huge following if you mm -hmm. really love a character on a cartoon a sh animated show whatever or you know where there's voice acting going on uh, i'm telling you what it was i did i had no idea how popular and well loved uh well, those folks Adina, could be for their art and their craft Mm -hmm. Adina, you just saw Billy West. Mm -hmm. I, I yep. mean, there's a guy who's that was done so many different character voices, both on Futurana and other commercials. I mean, it's it's, and people know him because who he is from those voice acting. Movies. I know yeah. Billy West. We we uh, well, I think he's if he's still with my agency, we were the same agent oh. for many years. So yeah, yeah. I know him. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he gave me a, so I, you know, you, they've, you've got the pictures to buy, right. And to get them signed. And he had Fry from Futurama. He had Zoidberg and I'm sitting there like, well, which do I choose? Which do I choose? And I settled on Fry and he gave me a hard time about it and did in the voice, you know, nobody wants the, you know, everyone wants the Fry or the robot. I can't, I can't do the voice. So, um, but it was so fun. It was so much fun, but I regret not also getting Zoidberg. <laughs> And getting both, yeah, he's very gifted, and part of his his genius is also just really improvisational. I mean, he mm -hmm. can improvise. He can, you know, it's like you don't even have to write the copy; he'll just do it on the spot. I believe that, yeah, because yeah. he was doing he was doing that with people on this, you know, on the spot in the voices. It was it was great. It was wonderful. And was it funny or weird, Adina, to see mm -hmm. that voice coming from his mouth? You know that that you know you have an envision of what Zoiber looks like or what mm -hmm. Fry looks like, and then when you see the actor himself doing those voices, it's like the first time I saw the mm -hmm. actor who does Homer Simpson, mm -hmm. and the voice coming from him, and I go, "That doesn't fit." Yeah, doesn't these go. days, no, I, I don't have, and that's only because at this point I've been exposed to so many people who have done you know this kind of work, but also in like when we get back to think about like Klingons and people in the makeup. Back when I was a teenager, the first science fiction convention I ever went to uh, was a Star Trek convention on Long Island in Huntington. It was Michael Dorn. Oh, and yeah. so this was 1988, 89. I was 14. And this is the first time I'd ever seen like someone like that outside of their makeup. And I didn't really I didn't know anything about the industry. like, obviously, I know this guy's a human. And but the the fact that I would never have rec I had really had no idea what he looked like. Mm -hmm. And I would never have recognized him had I walked down the street. I was so thrown off. And his voice was completely different. I was completely thrown off. But now, you know, in my late 40s, I've met a lot of people. I've seen a lot of stuff. I now it's not as is a uh, it, it's not like it was originally. But yeah. But <laughs> uh, not not to keep dropping names, but I've worked with yeah. Dan Castellaneta, who was uh, Homer Simpson. Ah, thank you. Thank I, you. I did a play with him um, here in Los Angeles um, called um, Harpo. Um, uh, oh, gosh, I forgot the name of it. 
but um, he played on a pianist named Oscar Levant, and I played Harpo Marx. Oh, oh my, my god! god. Delightful experience. Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute, and you had a so speaking cool. role? Yes, I did. Um, Harpo didn't speak <laughs> in his movies. And so yes, on. but but at home, you know, when he was at home and socializing, um, he he did speak. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was fun. But I did get to do one big long routine with a raincoat where I had all these props that came out of it and stuff. And oh my god, it was so hard to work all that stuff out. But uh, yeah, it was a gratifying experience. And he's a great guy. And I know I had no idea. He never talked in the Homer Simpson voice. And I never wanted to ask him to do it. You know what I mean? It was <laughs> like when Tony Randall um, on The Odd Couple used to do that. I don't know if anyone remembers, but that thing with his nose when he. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, Johnny Carson or somebody asked him to do it. And he just looked really unhappy. And he just said, I don't remember what you're talking about. And it was like, okay, because you don't want me to do it. <laughs> wow. That, that now, now in the TV series, it was it was hysterical. But in uh, Jack Lemon and was it Walter Matthau? Yes. We were yes. in the film together. That scene in the restaurant when he starts doing that and Walter Matthau's response to that is one of the funniest scenes, in my opinion, of all time. I know I've seen it, but I don't remember I just, it. I remember <laughs> I can watch that and just absolutely it's just brilliant that, that walter matto is one of those people he can do absolutely nothing and he's just utterly <laughs> hilarious he's master yeah. of the deadpan yes he absolutely. is that's a great way to describe mm -hmm. it yep so i was gonna say uh, dean i didn't mean to interrupt no, no, him, no, go, go. i was gonna say your history and background in theater has that been something you've enjoyed more than television and movies or is you know doing theater and, and oh yeah the next thing yeah i mean in theater you get to be the star you know i uh -huh. mean you know i i get to to really open up and be on stage and be seen for a long period of time and uh -huh. i can reveal who i am you know and yeah. a lot of times in film and television with the roles that come around you're really almost like a prop with clothes mm -hmm. on you're there to advance the plot and the mm -hmm. main characters um are the ones that are allowed or permitted humor and humanity and, you know, fully dimensional personalities. Mm -hmm. And, and you're not really, really allowed to do that so much, or they don't give you that many opportunities in film and television. Whereas on, on stage, I mean, you can express yourself fully and be seen. Yeah. And there's this wonderful the thing. Oh, go ahead, oh. Steve. I'll, I'll, no, I'll gonna, the reason I've seen bring us in is because my daughter, Jenny studied theater management at, at Cal State Fullerton. And so we went to a convention one time and Armin Shimmerman was there. And when he found out that she was in theaters, he wanted to talk only about theater. He didn't want to talk about Star Trek. He didn't want to talk about his character as Quark. He wanted to talk about theater because it seems like yourself, who comes from a theater background, it's like that's more important than television to do theater. Well, absolutely. And Armin's an old friend of mine. So I've I've known him for many, many years. And I've actually um, been on stage with him at a theater company called Antius, where I'm one of the very longstanding members. But um, and Armin, you know, it, it loves Shakespeare and actually teaches mm. Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's really a, a wizard when it comes to Shakespeare. Yeah. And that's that's where his heart is. You know, he he did. All, he, he does that. Uh, the uh, on camera stuff for his bread and butter. And but what he what he really cares about is theater. Yeah. So I think okay. I think one of the ahead, one of the great things about theater, um, and I just had I had one experience in college on the college level with theater, and I played three different characters. So I was a character actor, I guess, for that thing. But one of the mm -hmm. great things about it, and I've seen so many videos, and the joy that comes out of the actors. And also the audience during that curtain call. When, I mean, that's that's just got to be something that is a part of the stage thing is that that curtain call when an audience appreciates what you've done, the work you put yeah. into it, the, you know, the sacrifice to, to do that night after night or however, you know, is just tremendous. Well, I tell you, though, what's so gratifying is when you're doing a comedy and there's just that wave of laughter. Mm. And and sometimes you can really milk it where there's the laughter mm. that it dies down, then it comes back again, <laughs> even more. And it's just like cocaine, man. I mean, it's just pure love. It's it's so gratifying. I can't even explain it. 
Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. So since your your dad was in, you know, was a an actor, was this, I guess, preordained that you were going to be going into the field or? Yeah, I think so. You know, I grew up going backstage, uh, mm -hmm. hanging around the theater. I would go on Saturdays and, you know, my dad was in a, a long running show called Shenandoah on Broadway for, for three years. And, and it was a musical and I would be backstage all the time. And I, I, I kind of love the whole backstage of it all. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when the musicians would warm up under the stage and I got to know those guys and I would hang out with the chorus guys. And then I would run out and, you know, watch some of the show, but like after seeing it three times, I knew every single line and all, you know, all the songs. Um, I remember my dad did a, uh, a musical called 1776, which is turned into him. And he also did the movie. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He played the bad guy, Ed, uh, Edward Rutledge, the senator from South Carolina, who was kind of a, a pro slavery guy. And he does this wonderful uh, musical number called Molasses and Rum to Slaves. But he's like really the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I remember uh, I was told, actually, that when I was about five, um, I started to walk on stage uh, because people were being mean to my dad and my father had to kind of rush over to the wings and, and usher Aww. me, kind of push me off stage. So yeah, I guess it was preordained for me uh, for better or for worse. So what was the first thing you, your papa. yeah. What was the first thing, thing you ever acted in? Uh, well, you know, I mean uh, the first thing that really where I caught the bug was when I did, um, uh, the role of Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet in high school. And um, I, I was terrified to do it. And my mm -hmm. father basically showed me what to do. Um, he, 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 and I literally imitated him. So I had this wonderful speech, the Queen Mab speech. Oh, then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, drawn with a team of little atomies athwart men's noses as they lie asleep. And I did all this stuff, and the audience went crazy, and I was like, this is where I belong. Um, mm. And really, you know, I learned by imitating, and my theory of acting is very simple. Um, I think acting is pretending. Now, the, the trick is you have to pretend really well. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. <laughs> you know, so in high school, I did like the I was part of the stage crew. Uh, again, I'm technical. I could help do. I, I can't I can't be anything but me. I can't I can't do that kind of pretend. It's OK. You're sending yeah. things into outer space that go millions of miles true. away. I don't this is yeah, true. I think pretty it's pretty okay darn exciting act. stuff. Come on. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so so, Mr. Column, I'm really interested as a musician myself, lifelong. You've got two beautiful guitars behind you. Um, I count uh, actually, I, I have see six. four. I, see I count four. six. <laughs> oh, I, have, I, have, I haven't looked I have up seven in here. OK. Oh, seven. OK. Yeah. So, so, uh, what it's, it, what got you in music? What, what is, that's obviously a passion because you've got a lot of it right there behind you. <laughs> All right. So like my journey with music is really kind of weird. Um, that's so many. Yeah. Musicians are. So <laughs> my mom got me a guitar for my 19th birthday because she wanted me to be able to sing and play at the same time. Well, I, I wasn't interested in singing and I wasn't mm. particularly interested in the guitar, but <laughs> I had kind of small hands mm. and um, I had this theory that if I played the guitar, my hands would get larger. Oh. So I thought to, to practice the guitar. And so that's what actually motivated me. Now, I did happen to have a terrific teacher who was a jazz guitarist. And so once I kind of started playing, um, then I began to really appreciate the music. But I'm an instrumentalist. I, I mean, I can sing a little bit and I can play, uh, you know, chord changes and I can sing along with them. But that's not where my heart is. I actually play a lot of Bach. Um, wow, so. really? Yeah, so it's really, I'm a really an instrumentalist. That's what interests me. And I love the intricacy of it. I love the discipline of it. I play two hours a day. I love practicing. Wow. So yeah, it's a big part of my life. That's fantastic. That's that's the type of stuff I love learning. 
but I still have like these little girl hands. I mean, right. look at my pinky. It's like the size. I've seen nine-year-old girls with bigger pinkies than mine. It doesn't yeah. matter. One again, we not were me. talking about it's not the tools that make the the person it's the person and you're able to manipulate your fingers to be able to do all the two things hours that... a day that's yeah. that's, that's, that's amazing that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a commitment yeah that's awesome that's a that's a passion though that's like yeah, people that's don't true. do that's that, that unless they enjoy it and they enjoy the challenge of it and the growth they get from it i mean that's mm -hmm. so that's have cool. you done classical music on the guitar is that what you like to do Yes, I like to play classical music on the wrong kind of guitar because you're supposed I would to play... love to hear that. And I'm not asking you to play this for us, but I mean, that that is <laughs> taking one genre of music that is guitar and bring it to orchestra, you know, orchestra music, which is woodwinds and 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 stringed instruments and so on. I, I think that's amazing. I love classical yeah. guitar. Classical to listen yeah. to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Segovia, the famous guitarist, you know, he said the guitar is like an orchestra. Um, you know, you have so much, uh, so much range, so many dynamics and so much expression. Um, mm -hmm. It's also an instrument that combines single lines, meaning just, uh, you know, one note at a time mm -hmm. or chords, which mm -hmm. of course everyone knows about. So you can alternate between those. And, uh, but I also play um, blues and some jazz. Like I love to improvise. I love the blues. Um, and I, I can do that for a long time. So, you know, wow, I can just sit amazing. there and play blues. Uh I, my wife and I, we love Hawaiian guitars, uh, slacky guitar. We go to a lot of concerts. We see those perform. And like, when I would see someone like Jim Kimo West playing the guitar and the quick manipulation of his fingers and the coordination between strumming or picking, and I just sit there like I'm, I'm just blown away by what comes out of, mm -hmm. out of the sound box of a guitar. It's amazing. I commend you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I once yeah, got. I, I, I once got to. This is a, a little bit off topic, but not really, because because it's still a string instrument. But the harp is a very interesting instrument, and I once back again years ago got to see a very renowned jazz harpist. Jazz wow. harp? Did you say and jazz? Wow. Jazz. Yeah, that, he yeah, specialized cool. in jazz, and he said the hardest part of that was especially in any type of recording the pedals are quite loud and so and reverberate the strings a little bit depending on the harp and so he said learning how to have a soft touch with his feet as he changed would manipulate the pedals um was really the hardest thing for him but i could have listened to him for hours plays jazz on the harp you never jazz put harp. that together but it again that goes back to if you've got a passion if you're willing to practice and go for it well and yeah. the harp is certainly a labor of love because transportation is yes. huge. <laughs> the size yes. of a case of that thing you know you have to buy like three plane tickets just to you know take it somewhere so when you played harpo marks did you have to fake it was that I, or did did how did that go well, I had to, we had a live harpist um, behind the stage, like sitting in the shadows on stage. And I had to, but we, I, so I had to pantomime the harp. And I must say, it's really hard to pantomime. I, I, it, it didn't, it didn't look very good at all. I was never satisfied with my pantomime, but I did, I made up for it by doing a lot of, you know, right, right, right. gestures and, and self-applause. So, Great. yeah. So it sounds like you you watch yourself too. Like you you watch yourself too. I think it sounds like you you watch some of the the film or TV work you've done. Do you have your theater stuff recorded? Do you watch it? No, I actually don't um, um, watch myself. I'm I'm not interested. Once the job is done, I'm done with it. Um, you know, I did recently an NCIS uh, Los Angeles, and I did watch it. I skipped to my scenes and I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's fine. But I'm not, I'm not really interested. Um, and then as far as theater, you know, no, there's theater looks like crap when you record it. I mean, it just, unless you have cameras all over the place and you're capturing every moment, usually in an empty theater because you have to get so many angles, but you can't really capture the theatrical experience. So no, you know, it's an ephemeral art that, that I practice. It's, it's once it's done, it's done. 
Yeah. I, I used to think, you know, so again, not as someone on stage, but as someone who watches and appreciates watching, you know, so I grew up going to, you know, all the Broadway shows and stuff. Um, since I moved out of New York, I, I don't do this anymore. So I saw Hamilton when they released the the movie version that was a recording of the Broadway show. And that I was not expecting what I saw. I was expecting it to be okay. I was expecting to enjoy the music. Mm-hmm. So I, I was familiar with the music, but it was amazing to the point where this is how I want to see Broadway from now on. I want to be up close, <laughs> have many cameras and many angles and, and just, and be right uh, there. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. If you have the budget, you can make a terrific yeah. experience, but you know, I haven't been in those kinds of productions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do miss going to all the the New York stuff, but I've only been to one New yeah. York play. That was the Nance with um, Nathan Lane at the Lyce- Lyceum Theater mm-hmm. in New York City, and mm-hmm. we were at the top. I mean, my wife and I were in the top row of the back section, so we could look down on the entire set, and it was f- wonderful. It was mm-hmm. so much fun to see that a real Broadway production. It was, it was great. Plus I saw, I saw Nathan the, Lane is hilarious. I saw the Lion King at Mandalay Bay in Vegas once. Does that count? Yes, no. it does. No, it's oh, not. No, no, no. It's, it's, well, no, it doesn't it's count Broadway. as seeing something on Broadway. It's counts okay. as seeing a Broadway play, but you're not seeing it in yeah. New York. You have to be on the streets of New York to get to your theater. You, you need the yep. New York experience. Right. Yeah, Although I think Vegas is the second largest theater town as far as working actors. I mean, there's like, they employ, employ a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. There you go. But Thank you. I happen Thank to think Las Vegas is hell on earth, so I would. Definitely <laughs> yeah. Then you're but, never going to go to the Star Trek convention there, okay? <laughs> well, I won't say never. Maybe that's not Yeah. If invited, yeah. you would go. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So you spend two hours a day playing music. So what else are you doing these days? Oh, gosh. Well, I run a writing group on uh, on Saturdays. It's called Word Word, like the word forward, but with word in it. And um, we really just kind of write about our lives. So we write mm. stories. Uh, and uh, and so that is is a huge part of my life now um, is writing. And I'm also a member of a couple of theater groups. So I do Zoom. I do. We do readings on Zoom. Oh, and, great. Um, and then another thing I've started doing, which sounds kind of pretentious, but I've been collecting art. Um, and uh, like, I love abstract art. I just got a wonderful sculpture um, that weighs 200 pounds. And I think I've permanently injured myself getting it into the house, nice. but I love it. And uh, yeah, I otherwise, you know, I, I don't I don't need to do a lot. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm totally into true crime. So nice, uh, nice. that's my thing. Um, yeah. Neat, neat. So the word, so I have to ask about the writing group because I write. And so it's, it's interesting. So it's a memoir group. Is that a, a deliberately a memoir group? Well, um, my, my idea, because it's called word word, mm-hmm. the whole point of the group is to keep us all moving forward as writers. So I don't okay. care what you write. You can write poetry, you can write plays, which we've had, you can write memoir, you can write fiction. The, the point is I want the writers to feel encouraged to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start every uh, session with 36 mm-hmm. minutes of free writing, which mm-hmm. if you're a writer, you probably know what that is, which literally, uh, well, we use a prompt. So like you, you know, let's say you just open a book and you point to a word strawberry and you put that word in the chat. And so for 36 minutes, you just start with strawberry. And really, it doesn't matter where with where you start, you'll end up writing about mm-hmm. what it is you need to write about. It's almost just like pulling a thread and uh, you'll find your way to something. Uh, nice. So uh, th- that's uh, that's kind of the magic of writing that I that I love. Mm-hmm. So you're you're welcome to come visit us sometime. And I would love to free write with us. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you Zoom or is it in person? Because it's, it's in on person, Zoom. it's going to be. A, hey, then I definitely I definitely would love to join you guys. Yeah, I'm part of a, a local writers group. Um, you know where, where I am, and what we do is we actually host critique sessions. So uh, anytime that we host one of these sessions, two to four people give us like either a 5,000 word chapter or a short story. And we critique it ahead, you know, we, we review it ahead of time and provide feedback to the members, you know, during during the session. We, we've done other things too. We've done some free writing sessions or some what we call write-ins, mm. which is really, we're just gathering. But in, not this weekend, next weekend, I'm hosting a writer's retreat 
for uh, some of the members of the group when this will be our second year. We just Airbnb'd a large enough house <laughs> and we're going to go have this retreat for the second time. And it's great. No, I, I writing is that is my, you know, what, what music is to some of you guys, that's writing is to me. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. It's a way of understanding yourself. You know, I, yeah. um, I feel like you cannot really um, get past an experience or own an experience until you've written about it. But once you've written about it, you're now bigger than the experience. Mm. And you can, you can say like, okay, I've embraced it. I've understood it. Mm. Yeah. That's, That's really, yeah. And I find that very interesting. Um, Cause well, look, the fact is everybody has stuff, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, my stuff is a little weird. Like sometimes I'll get really upset about not being able to find a toaster on Amazon because you can't find anything without horrifying reviews that say this thing burned my house down. And I realize that I've spent half the day trying to find a toaster that will be decent. Right. And then I write about it, you know, to purge myself of all of the frustration. That's awesome. It's, it's funny you say that because yes, that is writing, writing a review of something. And sometimes, like my wife, we'll, we'll look at, you know, we're going to stay at some place or a hotel, whatever. And you start reading the reviews of some people and you go, these people are very unhappy individuals. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. They just complain. Well, I, not... I was in Hawaii and we saw an insects in our hotel room. <laughs> it's Hawaii. There are insects there. The, Why are you complaining the, about the... that? But they have to do that because it's fun to write complaints, I guess. I will tell you, there is only one word you need to destroy a hotel's reputation, and that is bed bugs. Yes. Oh, God, yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. What, yeah. What gives me anxiety is when I'm looking, especially like for vacation rentals of any type, okay? Mm-hmm. is you have reviews that say never stay in this place they should burn it to the ground and people that say it is the most luxurious beautiful comfortable place i've ever stayed in who what who are, <laughs> who are these two different people are, like... they, are they on two different planets or two different uh multiverses of the same hotel room that they've been in yes you're absolutely right mm-hmm. brian Anyways, (laughs) well, that's a tangent. There you go. Exactly. I was just going to say, here we are doing our tangents again, going way off of Star Trek and what JD's done for acting. We're talking about reviews of hotel rooms. Oh, my goodness. I I hope we haven't driven you crazy, JD. (laughs) Oh, you have, but in the most delightful way. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. Well, then that might, this might be a good place to start to wrap things up for the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, JD, do you want to say any, fi- do you have any parting thoughts for us as we go off into the world in our evenings? Um, oh my goodness. I'm just, I know I, that was a, a big question. I, yeah. I, I, I'm just excited that you guys have like teamed up to do this and that you've created this thing. And how, how long has this been going on? Just over a year. Yeah. Just past a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's been, it's been fantastic. Um, I know. A few months prior to that, I had been getting asked by people if I was going to podcast. And I was like, no, no way. No, 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 no. I love being a guest on a podcast. I didn't want to host. But then I met these guys. And unfortunately, Chris wasn't able to be here, too. And this has just been magical. Um, It's like we are hanging out with our friends talking about fun stuff. And um, absolutely. Yeah. Someone recently who found our pot, who I met at a convention and <laughs> listened to the podcast, he sent a, a message to to me saying, hey, it, it sounds like I'm listening to some people hang out at a convention and talk about <laughs> stuff. And <laughs> he's in, meaning in, in a very positive way. I'm like, yeah, it, it's so this mm-hmm. has been this has been great. <laughs> and, and we hope and, to keep and, going. Yeah, it's no, it's been fun. And I'm I as I've said, I'm so lucky to have in, been introduced and met Brian and Adina and Chris. We, we we still have not physically met each other. Oh my we gosh! We've ne- we're going to meet that where there's a there's a Star Trek convention in Long Island in May. We're going to get together and represent our podcast there, and we're going to physically meet each other. But it's been because of this Zoom connection, we 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 already know each other so very very well, and we're such good friends, and it allows us to as we have met other people in the industry and we've brought them into this podcast, we've gotten to meet some of the most amazing people, yourself included, JD, mm-hmm. that have um, allowed us to learn a little bit more. You know, it's it's easy just to talk about the nuts and bolts about how many phasers are on the Enterprise D <laughs> and, and uh, well- Which we monster- can talk about at nauseum. Yes, we can. <laughs> 
but it's also fun to interview people and to get to know them. Um, and I think like when we first met and introduced John Billingsley from Enterprise, we realized that you people have, you have so much to share and so much to tell with us about your philosophy, your beliefs, your feelings. And it just makes our, I think that's what makes our podcasts so very, very special. And and thank you for being here, JD. It's been, we've made a new friend. Okay, and I hope bringing a we'll tear stay to me, friends. I... Ah, oh. yes. It's bringing a, a wee tear to your eye, know. Oh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I can't talk about it too much, my friend. I thought I was going to have the nerve to muster up my Mickey, but I can't. Oh, that, that's okay. Right that's there. okay. Well, it's okay. You can do goofy if you like. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, guys, um, I, I do want to say thank you again, JD. Thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to talk to us today. And then I want to say to our listeners, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts about going, you know, on these journeys with us and just representing science fiction or just anything else with your favorite sci-fi. So please join us on the Big Sci-Fi Podcast Facebook group to share your thoughts and comment about this episode or send us an email at thebigsci-fi-podcast at gmail.com. And again, thank you to all our members on our Facebook group for being such awesome supporters of the show. You are the reason we keep getting together via Zoom to record these episodes weekly. So until next week, stay well, and we look forward to going with you where few podcasters have gone before. <laughs>